Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Lake Oconee, Georgia. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. This case takes place in 2014, but in order to get there, we have to go all the way back to the 1920s. Russell Derman and Shirley Wilcox were both born in the 1920s and were high school sweethearts that turned into a forever love. After graduating from high school, Shirley went to Bernard College, ultimately taking a job as a secretary, while Russell went into the Navy and fought in World War II. He served for three years before leaving the Navy, then enrolled in Farley Dickinson College, where he was elected into Pi Beta Kappa. Throughout college and war, Russell and Shirley's love never wavered, and on December 15, 1951, the two got married. Their wedding was Christmas-themed, with Shirley's bouquet made of white poinsettias, and her bridesmaids all wore red and green velvet dresses with little caps trimmed with sprigs of holly berries. The couple took their honeymoon to Lake Placid, and when their vacation was over, they settled into a house in Maywood, New Jersey. Russell finished out his college years, then went to work for General Time Corp., which is a clock company. He became a director of information services, which was a dream job because it gave him the opportunity to travel around the world. In the years following, the two welcomed three sons and one daughter, and Shirley left her job as a receptionist to become a stay-at-home mom. One of the children later told WTSP that Russell and Shirley were total family people. There was nothing they liked more than spending time with their family. They were just the most wonderful people you'd ever want to meet. By the 1980s, the Derman children were all grown up and out of the house. Planning for their future, Russell and Shirley decided they wanted to leave something behind for their family. So Russell retired from General Time Corp and went into the fast food franchise business. The couple relocated to Atlanta, Georgia, and it wasn't long before Russell was managing a chain of 16 Hardee's or Carl's Jr., depending on where you're from. A ton of work, but something they were really happy to do. In 1994, the Dermans started thinking about officially retiring for good. They looked at some properties located off Lake Oconee, which is about 80 miles southeast of Atlanta. The lake is absolutely stunning and lined with beautiful multi-million dollar homes on the water. Russell and Shirley wound up buying nearly an acre of land in a gated subdivision called Reynolds Lake Oconee. A quick Google search tells you that this area is a 12,000-acre club community with six world-class golf courses, a lakefront Ritz-Carlton, 11 distinctive culinary venues, four full-service marinas, swimming pools, 21 miles of pedestrian trails, tennis courts, and mansions throughout. Essentially, it is the dream place to retire and live out the rest of your life. As an added bonus, the area was incredibly safe. The crime rate was zero, absolutely zero. There hadn't even been so much as a burglary reported in the area. The community, which at the time of the Dermans purchase was only around 500 homes, had guards posted at the entrance, and if someone wanted to come for a visit, the guards had to get verbal confirmation from the residents before they were even allowed to get through. The Dermans' property was located on Carolyn Drive, tucked away in the back of a heavily wooded cul-de-sac that overlooked a cove including their own private dock. 
1999, they started building their dream home and wound up with a stunning 3,200-square-foot, two-story, four-bedroom, four-bathroom lake house. Their long back deck with white columns running along the length of it was what Sunday morning dreams are made of. Even though Russell and Shirley had settled into their dream retirement home, they made it a priority to spend as much time as they could with their children and grandchildren who lived out of state. When they weren't spending time with family, you could find Shirley gardening, playing bridge, and crushing crossword puzzles. You could find Russell reading, taking long walks, and playing golf. At one point, they even owned a boat, but they wound up selling it. May of 2014 started off like any other month for the Dermans. On the first, Russell ran some errands. He went to the bank, then to a grocery store where he bought bread and cucumbers. He also picked up some prescriptions for Shirley, who had an upcoming cataract surgery. On May 2nd, a neighbor remembered seeing Russell walking on a neighborhood golf course. Even though he was almost 89 years old, he was active and loved taking advantage of the scenery his little community had to offer. Though, that's where the normalities and the Derman schedules ended. On May 3rd, the couple was supposed to attend a Kentucky Derby viewing party, but never made it, something that was completely unlike them. When the host throwing the party called the Dermans to check on them, they didn't answer. They also didn't answer any calls on the 4th or the 5th. On May 6th, neighbors started getting concerned, so they went to the Dermans' house to check on them. They knocked but got no response. No one came to the door and there was no movement inside. Getting more and more concerned, they decided they needed to get in, which wound up being easier than they planned because the door was unlocked. The Germans always locked their doors. As the neighbors made their way inside, they noticed that the house was spotless as usual. Shirley always kept an immaculate home, but Russell and Shirley were nowhere to be found. The crossword puzzle from an issue of USA Today was left open on the kitchen table, the couple's bed was still unmade, and Russell's daytime clothes were set out in the bedroom. It was eerie in a way that couldn't really be explained. It was almost like the couple had been interrupted during their morning routine, though that was the only thing that seemed off, at least until they made it to the garage. As the neighbors entered the Dermans' garage, they were met with the kind of grisly scene you'd only expect to see in a horror movie. 88-year-old Russell was behind and between the Dermans' two cars and was lying face up in a pool of dried blood. He had been beheaded, but his head was nowhere to be found. Immediately, the neighbors called the police, who arrived at the scene at around 10 a.m., they had the gut-wrenching task of searching the house for Russell's head and for Shirley, but neither were there. This led investigators to believe that 87-year-old Shirley had been kidnapped. With that, they called in the FBI. While one team of investigators frantically searched for Shirley, others started processing the scene. Right off the bat, a few things stood out. 
there was no sign of forced entry or any sign of a struggle. The house was mostly immaculate like the neighbors had noticed, with the only thing that seemed out of place an off-kilter lampshade in the living room. Both Shirley and Russell's wallets and phones were still inside and their valuables like jewelry and sterling silver hadn't been taken. There was no blood or weapon found anywhere inside the house, but the garage where Russell's mildly decomposed body was found was a different story. There wasn't a weapon, but there was a lot of blood. According to Eleven Alive, just behind one of the cars, investigators found a blood spot on the floor, as if something round had been placed there. Russell was wearing a short-sleeved shirt and boxers, and his clothes were bloody, but they were uncut. His slippers were haphazardly tossed to the side of his body, and his rope had been placed underneath him. Eleven Alive reports that Russell's hands were bruised and bloody. His left index finger had a severe gash. Tangled in the gash were strands of Shirley's hair, leading investigators to theorize that a struggle had taken place between the Dermans and the attacker. Russell's bare feet were blotchy with blood stains after leaving a red trail smeared from the door to his body. Aside from his robe being underneath him, there were towels placed around Russell's body, and investigators believed that was done to keep blood from seeping under the garage door. An autopsy would later show that Russell's head had been removed with a single clean cut, which is absolutely insane. The weapon required to do that isn't something your everyday person would have in their house. So why did someone with that weapon choose the 87 and 88-year-old Dermans? Without Russell's head present, his cause of death could only be described as craniocerebral trauma. However, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that due to gunpowder residue found on his collar, investigators believe Russell was shot, then his head was removed so the bullet couldn't be traced. This only made things more confusing since there was no blood spatter or evidence of a bullet hole in the garage. Because of the lack of evidence on that front, investigators couldn't determine whether or not Russell had been killed in there. To make everything even more confusing, there wasn't any blood inside the house, so it didn't seem like he'd been killed there either. Investigators hoped that maybe security cameras might have caught something, but unfortunately, the Dermans didn't have any. So detectives spoke with neighbors to see if they had cameras or if they had seen anything suspicious, but the answer to both questions was no. The next thing on the investigative checklist was to try and develop a timeline. Investigators asked if the neighbors had seen either of the Dermans prior to the morning of May 6th. The last time anyone could recall seeing even one of them was on May 2nd, while Russell was out taking his leisurely stroll. With that, investigators did something so brilliantly obvious that I don't know why we don't hear about it more often. They looked in the Dermans' mailbox. They saw that no one had picked up the mail from May 2nd and on, leading investigators to believe that Russell and Shirley were attacked sometime between 4.30 p.m. on May 2nd when the mail was delivered and 4 p.m. on the 3rd when the Kentucky Derby party started and the Dermans were a no-show. That timeline aligned with the dried blood around Russell's body and his mild level of decomposition. Knowing this community was gated like a whole-ass fortress, investigators checked to see if the guard tower at the entrance had working cameras. 
Obviously, they did have cameras, but bad luck strikes at the worst times and the cameras had been knocked out by a storm in the weeks before. It wasn't until detectives went to check on them that anyone noticed they hadn't been recording. Remember, up until this moment, their crime rate had been absolutely zero. It wasn't exactly a necessity to keep up with what was going on on the cameras. Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sillis told the Union Recorder that security procedures had actually been more relaxed prior to the attack on the Dermans. What seemed like an almost impenetrable community had a few holes to consider. There wasn't a record kept of visitors that had a decal, something that a lot of people had, like residents, mail deliverers, service workers, and more. And guards didn't keep track of license plates entering the community. There was also nothing keeping people from approaching the community from the lake. If you had a boat, you could drive up to the Dermans dock and get to their house that way, which is such a terrifying picture. Considering those factors, investigators couldn't determine how the killer got to the Dermans' house. While investigators processed the home for evidence and tried to track down surveillance footage, the search for Shirley was going strong, but it was almost like looking for a needle in a haystack. They just had no idea where she could be. Starting from the scene and spreading out, detectives searched the lake and the woods surrounding the Dermond house. The Macon Telegraph reported that investigators searched the lake with sonar and even dragged an area of the lake near the couple's home. They also used cadaver dogs to look through the woods near their house, but found no sign of her anywhere. As day after day passed by with no sign of Shirley, investigators and the Derman children started to lose faith that they'd find her alive. Because of the horrific way Russell was found, the FBI looked for any sign of organized crime with Shirley and Russell. They went through phone and financial records and spoke to several people, but Sheriff Sills told the media that they came up with, quote unquote, nothing, nothing, nothing. They've been married 64 years and were hearing nothing but glorious accolades about these people. A neighbor echoed that statement, telling the Macon Telegraph, you couldn't say anything bad about the Dermans. Everybody would always say how sweet they were. One of the Derman children told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that they couldn't think of anyone who would want to hurt their parents. They thought maybe they had been targeted due to their nice house, or maybe it was a case of mistaken identity. But the issue with the nice house target theory starts to seem less and less likely when you consider the fact that the Derman's house wasn't the nicest house in the area. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that while the couple was financially well-off, they weren't rich, especially by Lake Oconee standards, and the Dermans weren't ones to flaunt their money. One friend said they were unassuming, quiet, stable people. With the first week of the investigation coming to an end, detectives weren't any closer to figuring out who did this and where Shirley was. Sheriff Sills told the media it was the most baffling case he'd seen in nearly 40 years. He said that if Shirley had been abducted, they would have expected to see a ransom note. If the attack on the Dermans was meant to be an assassination, both bodies would have been left at the house. Sill said investigators didn't believe the crime was committed by some random traveling serial killer because it's not the type of neighborhood for random crime. 
The Dermans case was leaning in every and zero directions all at the same time, so an FBI profiler was brought in pretty quickly. The profile they put together was expectantly vague. They believed that at least two or three seasoned criminals were involved. The perpetrators were likely male and gun and knife enthusiasts. That's it. Or at least that's all that's been released to the public. The profiler told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that beheadings are rare and almost always personal. Taking Russell's head, quote-unquote, makes a tremendous statement. The profiler mentioned that at that point, many believed the Dermans had been specifically targeted. But why? There was nothing to suggest they had any enemies. That fact led investigators to look into the lives and relationships of the Derman children, wondering if maybe someone had been trying to send one of them a message. It took no time at all to conclude that there was nothing to indicate the children were involved. They were all fully cooperative, consenting to thorough questioning and polygraphs. Still desperate for any kind of lead, investigators looked into anyone who could have been in the neighborhood at the time of the attack. Landscapers, maintenance workers, and even mail delivery persons, but they didn't find anything. On May 16th, two fishermen were in the middle of Lake Oconee, about five miles by boat from the Derman home. It was an area of the lake filled with submerged tree limbs and trunks, and it was there that they came across Shirley's body. It had washed up on top of one of the treetops and was about eight inches beneath the surface of the water. Her body was extremely bloated, she had not been decapitated, and was still wearing her clothes, a short sleeve shirt, pants, socks, and sneakers. Shirley had been weighted down with two 30-pound red concrete blocks, which were wrapped in a blue mesh bag. Thankfully, the attempt to keep her body concealed had not been enough to keep her at the bottom of the 50-foot deep water. Investigators searched the same area for Russell's head, but they were unable to locate it due to all the submerged tree limbs and trunks. All the vegetation in the water made it difficult for divers and sonar, and as of this recording, Russell's head has never been found. Shirley's autopsy showed that she was dead before she was put in the water. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. There had been at least two impacts, which fractured her skull and caused her brain to hemorrhage. The fractures were circular, which led the medical examiner to theorize that the weapon was rounded or circular at the end, like possibly a hammer. There was no other significant trauma to Shirley's body. Following her attack, Shirley's ankles were bound tightly with paracord, a thin rope. The cord was wrapped over her socks, five times around both ankles, and three times around each ankle individually. The cord was then attached to the concrete blocks before Shirley was put into the water. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, investigators don't believe Shirley's body was meant to be found, unlike her husband's. This only added to their confusion. Why would the couple be killed in completely different ways and left in two separate areas? Sills told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that Russell's death seemed professional, but Shirley's didn't. A professional assassin doesn't quote-unquote beat a woman with a hammer or whatever she was beaten with, then tie her down with inadequate anchoring. Nothing was making any sense. The fact that Shirley had been found in the lake told the investigators that the perpetrator or perpetrators had access to a boat. 
They thought it was possible the perpetrator had taken Shirley's body out on the water at night since it seemed highly unlikely that someone would do that in the daylight when there would be countless potential witnesses. Sheriff Sills said that further led investigators to believe that whoever it was knew exactly where they were going and how to get there, especially if they did it all in the dark. Sills said it doesn't mean the perpetrator was local, but it does show that they had a solid familiarity with the lake. It was certainly possible the perpetrators arrived at the house by boat, but detectives weren't totally convinced. One could have arrived by boat while the other arrived by vehicle. Because of the lack of evidence, they were left with a seemingly endless list of possibilities. That lack of evidence posed even more questions when it came to Shirley's cause of death. She had been bludgeoned, but after the weeks spent scouring the Dermond house, detectives never found any evidence that she had been killed there. Sheriff Sills told Eleven Alive, the injury she sustained almost certainly should have left some physical evidence that wasn't present at the home, so she might not have been murdered there. It was possible Shirley had been murdered on the boat, but the only thing they knew for sure was that Russell's head had been removed in the garage. That was all they knew, though. They weren't even sure if he was actually killed there or somewhere else. Following the discovery of Shirley's body, investigators went door-to-door -door interviewing more than 200 residents in the community. They asked if they'd seen anything on either May 2nd or the 3rd. Those 200-plus interviews were described as productive but didn't lead to any major tips. It was later revealed that one neighbor said they saw a man on the Derman property during the time frame the murders are believed to have occurred. Unfortunately, they didn't get a good look at him since there was a lot of distance and trees between their homes. A description of this mystery man has never been released. By the end of May, detectives still didn't have any solid ideas as to what happened to the Dermans. Sheriff Sills theorized they were probably targeted because of something that they had or something people thought they had, or some sort of extortion that didn't go through. In mid-June, Sills told the media that investigators had collected hundreds of fingerprints and hair and tissue samples, but they still hadn't received any credible tips. At that point, Sheriff Sills thought the only thing that would break the case open was a tip, and the best way to get one was to offer a reward. So he announced a big one, $30,000. He also did something he had never done in his 20 years as being sheriff. He asked the public to donate to the fund. The higher it was, the more likely someone would come forward. By the first part of August, the reward was up to $55,000, but credible tips still weren't coming in. Sills was rightfully frustrated by the lack of progress. In his 40 years in law enforcement, he had never not solved a murder. Dude had even managed to take down an entire cult at one point. He was bound and determined to solve this case. He canceled a long-planned vacation to Europe and stopped taking time to enjoy his hobbies like reading and fishing. He told the media, I go to sleep every night thinking about this case, and I wake up every morning thinking about this case, and I'm not exaggerating at all. The investigation into what happened to the Dermans and who was responsible continued to slow down. By November, only two people were actively working the case. 
Sheriff Sills himself, and one detective. They were sifting through thousands of pages of financial documents and phone records and interviewing family, friends, and business associates. Some of those people even underwent polygraphs, but there were still no leads or suspects. Sheriff Sills told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that they still hadn't found any motive. None. There was nothing bad in the Dermans' background. No criminal connections. Nothing. After a solid year of investigating, Sheriff Sills told the outlet that there had been some developments, including a valuable piece of forensic evidence, but he wouldn't elaborate on what that evidence was. In fact, he said they were no closer to solving the case than they were on day one. However, he did say he was convinced that the people who killed the Dermans knew the Dermans. They knew the house to some extent. They had been there before. While he was speaking with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he also made sure to clear up any toxic rumors about the Derman children being involved. He stated that all of the children had been fully cooperative, all had verifiable alibis, and all had passed polygraphs. Not to mention, the children wouldn't have really had motive for the murders. Investigators believe that Shirley's death points away from financial motive for the children. They believed this for two reasons. One, Russell and Shirley were each other's executors. And two, the perpetrator clearly didn't want Shirley's body to be found. If she had remained missing, her assets would have been frozen, meaning no money for anyone. A person actually has to be missing with no sign of life for seven years before they can be legally declared dead in the state of Georgia. For the next year, there weren't any major updates. Sills and the other detective continued looking into the case, but they weren't finding anything. By year two, Sheriff Sills told the Macon Telegraph that he had a message for the killer or killers, saying, don't for a second think we are not pursuing you. The sheriff's department was following every single lead they received, and if they came across a case where an elderly couple was murdered, Sills followed up with that department. If someone was decapitated, he followed up there as well. Years continued to pass without any new developments. At year five, Sheriff Sills spoke with the union recorder. He talked about all of the unknowns in the case, stating, We don't know where all the crime scenes were in this case, and that's been a big problem. Sills said investigators know there were at least two, possibly three, crime scenes. The water where Shirley was found and the garage where Russell's head was removed. Sills said he still doesn't believe Shirley was killed in the home, stating, Her injuries were such that there should have been physical evidence left behind that simply wasn't there. Sills said it was also possible that Russell wasn't killed at the home either. They could have been killed in the same place, but they just don't know. Sills said the only certain evidence is that after Russell was dead, his head was severed in that garage. That's the only evidence in that house. The amount of crime scenes and different causes of death leads Sills to believe there were at least two different killers, which is what the FBI profiler also said. In May of 2021, seven years after the Dermans were brutally murdered, investigators had an update to share with the public. Like Oconee News reported that Sheriff Sills had recently received some data, primarily cell phone data, which was loaded into an FBI program that wasn't available back in 2014. 
Sills said, I don't want to create an impression that I have acquired some silver bullet, but this is yet another tool we are using, trying to find out who perpetrated these heinous crimes. What we need more than anything is for someone to call us and tell us who is responsible for this savagery. Sill said he still thinks about this case every single day. It's a personal and professional embarrassment that he has not been able to solve the murders of Shirley and Russell Dermond. As much as I hate to say this, that was the last update there's been in this case. The murders of the Dermans remain the only unsolved cases in Putnam County. If you have any information, please call the sheriff's office at 706-485-8557. There is a $45,000 reward available. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Richard and Shirley's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me on TikTok tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern at the Heather Ashley, where you go live with me and we talk about this case and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It always makes my day. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, please share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 